Lord, thank you for the opportunity of coming freely to hear um, your scriptures from your scriptures this morning. Help us to really uh, hear and have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The human mind is like a series of coat hooks. We have hooks that help us organise our thoughts. Uh, and these hooks are the assumptions, beliefs and ideas that we carry around that help us interpret the world. And so when we listen to opinions or news stories, uh, we try and organise this new information uh, by finding a hook to hang it on. But there are some things that are so new to us, so beyond our experience, that we have no hooks on which to hang them. Uh, like a coat without a hook, these ideas fall to the ground. We fail to grasp what is really being said. And that happened to the disciples all the time with Jesus. Uh, Jesus would speak about the new kingdom of God's reign of justice and righteousness, and they really didn't understand. Jesus walked on the water, and they thought he was a ghost. No coat hook, you see. Um, his own family tried to control him because they thought he was arranged, deranged. No, no coat hook. And in Mark's gospel especially, we're told the disciples often didn't understand Jesus and were afraid to ask. They didn't have the coat hooks onto which to hang these new experiences and ideas. And this raises the obvious question. Do we have the right coat hooks to really understand Jesus? Do we really understand what he's asking of us? Uh, or have we forced him onto an existing coat hook? But the real Jesus has just fallen to the floor. So we come to our passage for today, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Now, chapters 8, 9, and 10 in Mark's gospel are absolutely pivotal. The movement begins in chapter 8, uh, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, that's good. And this is the climax of the first eight chapters. Jesus has been with the disciples, teaching, healing, and living with them. And in spite of many mis misunderstandings, they've come to believe that he is the long-awaited Messiah. So, immediately following the great confession of Peter, Jesus begins telling the disciples about the kind of Messiah he is to be. And each of chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus predicts his sufferings, and the disciples react in some way. And they're struggling to find the categories of thought to make sense of what he's saying. Their current coat hook just does not seem to work. In chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus says, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him, and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. And according to the narrative, almost before Jesus has finished speaking, the brothers James and John step forward and say to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
So let's get this straight. <laughs> Directly following Jesus' prediction of his death, James and John ask to be given anything they want. It's actually the sort of thing a child might say to a parent. You possibly experience this very thing. Getting them to agree before the, the request is made. Very sly, very tricky. Trying to secure some kind of moral leverage over Jesus before telling him exactly what they had in mind. But Jesus, typically, answers with a question. What is it you want me to do for you? And they replied, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. You can only imagine the conversation between the brothers that led up to this point. They had it all worked out. One would be deputy prime minister and the other would be minister of finance. Two and three on the party list. Beautifully sorted. We only need the agreement of Jesus. Don't you love it when the disciples say this kind of stuff? Uh, it's there, recorded in scripture, and it does not look good for them. In another sense, we must never laugh at them. Because they are so real, they are like us in so many ways. But it's still there because it happened just like that. Uh, this is not some retrospective fiction that the early church invented. They wouldn't do that. This is what happened. It was remembered vividly by all involved. Then, Jesus said to the two brothers, perhaps a little sadly, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? The cup speaks of the wrath of God against human wrongdoing. And the baptism is a reference to death, being plunged underwater, being overwhelmed and drowning. So Jesus is referring to his mission, which involved going to Jerusalem and taking upon himself the full wrath and consequences of sin, and in a sense, bearing the weight and effect of sin on our behalf. This is fundamental Christian thinking about the meaning of the cross. It's very complicated. There are many different theories. But to put it as simply as possible, Jesus went to Jerusalem to bear in himself all the wrongdoing of the world. Now, today, some people wonder, how Jesus could possibly have thought about his own death in such a deliberate, focused way. But isn't this the point? The disciples found it hard to believe as well. They did not have a coat hook for what Jesus was doing. He did not fit their categories of thought about what a Messiah was supposed to do. Then, in a moment of breathtaking naivety. James and John replied, we are able. And Jesus, with both gentleness and deep insight, said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus immediately acknowledged that James and John 
in subsequent years would indeed suffer for his sake. James was beheaded by Herod Antipas just a few years later because he was a Christian. And John would live out his life in lonely exile on the island of Patmos. But it would be by God the Father's own authority to grant these places of highest honour. So in the light of Jesus' prediction of his suffering and death, what do you make of this exchange between the brothers and Jesus? Well, James and John were part of the inner three along with Peter. And they were present at Jesus' most impressive moments. Uh, For example, they were present at the Transfiguration, when Jesus shone with dazzling light in his glory. And their coat hook for Jesus was an image of the Messiah that was about honour and glory. So in a way, the Transfiguration kind of confirmed certain elements of their understanding of who Jesus was. But in spite of Jesus' specific warnings that he would suffer and die and be raised to life, they continued to think in terms of worldly honour and power that was their main coat hook of interpretation. And as they walked towards Jerusalem, they must have imagined that, you know, whatever the specifics were, Jesus would end up on a throne in Jerusalem. Yes, they'd heard the prediction of suffering and death, but they interpreted this as just a little blip on the overall march to glory. And I'm certain they had in their mind's eye the throne room of an eastern potentate. You can imagine that yourself. With a central throne at one end, with smaller ones on either side. And well, Jesus only had two spots up there, right? Left and right. So we'll have to cut Peter out on this one. Uh, You see, three into two won't go. So the brothers got together and made a power play before the others cottoned on. And as we know, when they found out they were livid with James and John, it wasn't all happy, you know, happiness and light in the the disciple group of 12. There were factions. There was anger sometimes. And as we know, when they found out, they were livid for two reasons. Angry that James and John had beaten them to the punch and angry at themselves because they didn't think of it. That's speculation, but that would uh, fit what we know of the situation. But consider this. The disciples wanted the glory without the unpleasantness of the cross. They could not see past their own assumptions about the Messiah. They were locked into the wrong coat hook and couldn't free their minds to an alternative view. I meet people like that today, quite often, who think they know what Christianity is all about. And they don't really know what to do with the cross, for example. It's messy, it's problematic, um, it's embarrassing. You see, they want the ethics of Christianity without the cross. People laud the Christian faith for being such an ethical system. Let's leave it there. They want the comfort and the security and the ethics of religion. They don't actually want the real Jesus. But if you want the ethics, you see, you must have the cross as well because it's part of the same package. So Jesus goes on to address the central human problem that James and John and the other disciples were buying into 
and sometimes we buy into as well. And this is the problem of pride. Um, just as love, in a sense, represents all of the great virtues, and the virtues are different expressions of love, so in the same way, the sins are kind of represented by pride as the, the main one, and other, other sins are manifestations of human pride in many ways. So Jesus goes on to address this problem. Um, Jesus said, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. So do you see Jesus addressing the issue of the coat hooks right here? I'm referring to the little phrase, but it is not so among you. This is a call for deep conversion. We need a new coat hook for Jesus, a conversion of mind and heart. We need to see the world through God's eyes. We need the Holy Spirit to do a work of radical change and reorientation of our whole outlook on life. You see, the cross is not a little blip on the way to human power and glory as James and John had thought. The cross turns out to be God's big no to our human inclination toward power and honour and status. The cross is God's new coat hook for our minds, seeing the world through his eyes. And note that Jesus is both the example and the means of our conversion. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see the example and the means expressed there? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. That's the example. Jesus' whole life was given over in service to others. We, we are being called to follow the example of Jesus. But... It doesn't stop there. Jesus also gave his life as a ransom for many. That means, um, well, ransom speaks of purchasing something that had been forfeit. Ransom speaks of payment to set someone free. John Stott once said, the world and even the church is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters and status seekers hungry for honour and prestige. Measuring life by achievement and everlastingly dreaming of success. These individuals are, are aggressively ambitious for themselves. But it is not so among you, Jesus says. So I invite us all, as we receive communion this morning, to ask God to renew the coat hooks of our minds and to see Jesus in a new way and to see our own discipleship in a new way. We are called to lives of humble service, not seeking recognition or status, but loving God and neighbour as God loves us. Amen. Becky, could you come and lead us in prayer? Thank you.